Welcome back to the Anxious Millennial Podcast, where I, your host, Alexandra Vincelli, interview both millennials and non-millennials about their entrepreneurship and mental health journeys. My delightfully kind, talented, and brilliant guest on the podcast today, Dr. Sazini Anzula, is quite frankly one of the nicest people I have ever met. Sazini founded her consulting service as a venue to inspire parents to discover healthy perceptions of themselves as confident and knowledgeable experts. As a mother of two boys with autism, she spent more than a decade ensuring that every member of her family thrives. And therefore, in her business, she provides a step-by-step guide to embracing the uniqueness of each family and focusing on a child's strengths to catapult them to success. Sazini's a mother, an author, a speaker, an autism consultant, and a scientist. Her incredible book, Beautiful Inside and Out, What You Ought to Know About Autism, How to Embrace the Unique Way Your Child is Flourishing, is meant to help parents who are struggling to come to terms with their child's diagnosis. And so without further ado, welcoming Dr. Sazini Anzula to the Anxious Millennial. Sazini, welcome to the show. Thank you so, so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. I'm really honored to be here. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here. I can't wait to dive into all the learning pieces, but first off, I think you know what's coming. Sazini, what is your word for 2022 and why? I spent some time thinking about this and I came up, my word for this year is impact. And the reason is because my mom passed very, very suddenly last year, totally unexpected. And at the beginning of the year, I was thinking first about the impact of her passing on our family. But mostly I I was thinking about what her impact in her community, in her world was, because my mom, my mom worked a lot with women and with children. She was, she was an educator. She was a, a school principal. She was a teacher and then a school principal. And she worked in, um, not in the cities, she worked in, in rural um, schools most of the time. And what she, especially by the time she retired. And what she would do there, because, so she was teaching in Zimbabwe. And like many countries in Southern Africa, you have to pay for education. You have to pay to go to school. And when Um, families don't have enough resources and they have to choose, usually they choose not to send the girl to school. And so my mom would find these girls who who were good in school but didn't have the money and then she would look for sponsors to pay for the girls' fees. And there there were a lot of these. And so I was thinking of that. What she, like, what was the impact on these girls' lives? Like, where are these girls? So that's where I started. That's why I chose that word initially. But then I had to think about, I know some people maybe are in the same boat as me where if I get asked, usually I say yes to everything. But this year, having chosen this word, what that does for me is I think, okay, so what's going to be the impact of that on my time, on my family, on this? So I think about it before I I accept and also reflecting mm. on my mom. So, so those are the three reasons. It's a long way to, to, to say why. And the third reason was, okay, having seen my mom's impact in her community, what did I really want to do? 
because there's so many things that I could contribute, but what do I think would be most impactful? I'm picturing so many parents nodding their head in agreement with you right now, Sazini. Thank you for that. And what a beautiful impact your mom did have, without a doubt. I would be so curious to know where these girls are at. Is that something you you think about often? I know I would. Oh, yeah. I mean, some of them, I, uh, I see them on Facebook. I mean, it was mostly girls, but there were also some boys. And thinking, what a difference she made to these people's lives. And some were not schoolgirls, even women. She, she would always belong to these women's organizations to kind of to help the women find ways of looking after themselves, to find a way of income. Because when the women, especially in the rural areas there, when the women had a way of income, then the families generally did better. Mm-hmm. And so her impact was huge. It wasn't just the people direct, oh, huge, you know. <laughs> Huge for the people who were touched by her life. <laughs> you could say huge, Sazini, and that's this is the this is the humility that we don't <laughs> right now. We don't, <laughs> no humility necessary. The impact I bet was absolutely huge. So, um, and then there was the other piece also on saying yes often, uh, and I want to yeah. touch on that. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That one resonates, eh? <laughs> It's, what can you tell me about that? You know, it's this, oh, I want to help. I, want, I don't want to disappoint people. And so I say yes, or I used to. And then I'll end up running around, running myself ragged because I don't want to, by saying yes to some things, I was essentially saying no to other things that were important. No to rest for me. Mm. No to, it's, it, it, so it's to think about what is the impact of the yes, because you, when you say yes, there is a, that yes is going to impact other parts of my life. So I have to think about it. It's, I heard this recently and it was, when you say yes to something, think about what you're saying no to. And when you say no to something, think about what you're saying yes to. It was one of the most eye-opening and powerful things I had ever heard, because it's true when you make that choice, something else either falls by the wayside. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of the times that's us. Uh-huh. <laughs> we yeah. end up falling by the wayside. And, <laughs> right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's okay. I've got to get this done. So you give up sleep, you give up, you know, time for things that, reju- or at least for me, that rejuvenate me, exercise, or, you know, just rest time. Self-care, rest time, all of that good stuff. And seeing as we're both passionate people about mental health, mm-hmm. you especially, because of the work, the very important work that you're doing, what can you tell me, Sazini, about your passion project and what you're up to right now. Tell us about who you are and, and what you do. Well, I've, I have many hats, but my passion project, really, I have two kids who were diagnosed with autism when they were young. And they really, when they were two, they're both two. And they started me on this journey because when they were diagnosed, I knew nothing about autism. So I started really working, finding answers, because what happens is when a child is diagnosed here, where I am in, in, in Montreal, in Quebec, um, you get the diagnosis and you are told, go put your child's name on a waiting list for the local readaptation center. And when my older son was diagnosed, the wait list was two years. 
And that's after having waited. It was also two years, but I did this ninja maneuver that will need another session. <laughs> we will need another interview. <laughs> so to explain how I managed to cut it down from two years to six months. So wow. I'd already waited six months. And then to have to wait two years. And at the time, even now, those services stop when a child turns five. So you start the journey when the child is two. You have to wait two years. They are, they are four. And then you've got another two years. They end up not getting the services because the services end. So I didn't want to wait. So I started looking for answers for my, for my son. And I went and, I, and um, I looked for what I could do to help him. And that's how I started. And because my background, I should say, I'm, I'm, a, me I'm a medical microbiologist. I'm a scientist. So I needed things that are evidence-based. So I found all these solutions that were based on research because you know what happens, Alexandra, when your child is diagnosed and you're really desperate and you're overwhelmed, there's so many people who come offering you all the solutions because they know you're vulnerable and you're desperate and you will take anything. But mm -hmm. that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to find something that I knew was actually based on research. And so long story short, I ended up training as a Qigong sensory training um, therapist, which is really a research-based and a, a massage therapy that parents do at home. Having worked on my child, I ended up then showing other parents how to do this. And it's my passion project because, you know, parents are desperate. They, don't, they feel so powerless and overwhelmed. And this is a tool yeah. that they can use at home and they, it, and they feel that, you know what, they have the power to guide their child. So this is my passion. My passion is to show parents that, you know what, you are the natural guide of your child. No matter what the diagnosis, no matter what curveballs have come, you still know what's best for your child and you can help your child. So that's what I do. I, I show parents how they can take control and how they can lead their child and how they can help their child overcome some of those really, really tough challenges. Speaking of passion project, just to hear the passion coming out of you as you're describing it, there's so much there to unpack. You know, one mm -hmm. of the first things as I'm hearing you speak about this, Sazini, is the, I guess the system, um, what are your thoughts on perhaps the gaps and the holes as we see them in the system? Hearing you speak about it, I mean, what what needs to be done? I mean, so much, but what, what are your thoughts? I think, you know, the, as we learn more about um, pretty much anything really uh, about our health, as we learn more about autism, more and more kids are being diagnosed. And there's only so much money in the pot. And the traditional system was, okay, your child gets diagnosed, you go send them to a specialist, you send them to, this, um, to the government readaptation center and they work directly with your child. There are only so many people who can work with kids. The demand is far more than mm. the people available. But what's really, really fun is that in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of publications that have demonstrated that parents when they are effectively trained in different in different therapies that you can train parents and parents can actually make a difference in their kids lives just as much as these experts just as much as as therapists of course there's some things that you can't train 
parents to do. You know, if a child is um, co-diagnoses like um, psychiatric things, you still need a psychiatrist. But for the most part, when we train parents and we show them what they can do, then they help their kids, they help themselves, everybody does well. And when the child is doing well, the mother's mental health does better, everybody's mental health does better, the whole family does well. So I think now we really need to start looking at, okay, what can we show parents? How do we make parents part of the solution instead of saying, okay, child's diagnosed, we send them to the experts. It simply isn't enough money, enough people, enough of any other resources for that. That's a big education piece as well for myself. See, finding that out, I, I, I didn't know that. So thank you for that, because that's immensely important, I think, for any parent to know, especially as we start to learn more about autism. And I think what's beautiful about it in the literature, as you're speaking about it, that the more of the, the the research that's being done, I think stigmas are slowly starting to fall away. I think we're in a far mm. better place than we were. Oh. Um, what are your thoughts on on even the the stigmas and 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 what I guess traditional curriculums would cater to versus what a, an autistic child would need? It's a stigma is a, it, it's it's a work in progress. It's definitely much better. I mean, we are a long way off from when any child had any diagnosis, we would put them in the institution and forget about them. We're, you know, we've come a long way from that. But we still have, we still have a long way to go. For example, many adults with autism who are qualified can work. Right now, the unemployment rate in Canada is about 4%. But mm -hmm. for adults with autism who, are, who want to work, it's 82%. No. It's, yeah, it's, 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 so yes, we've come a long way. Yes, the stigma, we've made some progress with the stigma, but have we really? Why is it that we have people who are capable of working, who want to work, but when they have this diagnosis, their unemployment rate is much, much more than 10, like it's, it's a lot, lot, lot more than the, the average. Wow. But, you know what? There is encouragement. Last last week, actually, I attended a conference here in Montreal that was um, looking at um, the hotel industry employing people with autism and the systems that are there to support both the, the employer and the employees and to, to integrate them into the workplace. You know, we're starting to make little steps. So we're, we're making progress and all progress is good. All progress is good. And uh, hearing that statistic was baffling to me. So I, I yeah. was just, wow, I was taken aback hearing that. I think that speaks, uh, that's, that kind of speaks for itself, doesn't it? It's yeah. pretty, um, wow. And, and, you know, and, and this is why this, this conversation is so important, Sazini. Um, and thinking about you as a parent uh, and, and, you know, what you've had to learn these past few years, and, you know, do you, What's your relationship with anxiety? Do you ever struggle with, you know, uh, things that you feel are almost um, that that freeze you, or or do you have mechanisms that you you use that that can help other parents? What, what do you do? Um, me personally, I mean, things with anxiety. Really, I I got the, the, the I pulled up the lucky draw because you know. Anxiety is, is, is biological. True. And of course, I have anxious moments, 
but I haven't really experienced anxiety myself other than when my son was first diagnosed and I didn't know what was happening and, and I was being told to wait and I, w- I just froze. I thought, okay, what do you mean? Yeah. But what I do in, in general to cope is I, I have a, a gratitude journal, which I was introduced. It's called the five-minute journal. It's perfect for me because it's, I get up, it tells me I have to say, okay, wh- what, is it that, what is it that I am thankful for today? What is it that I'm going to get today? And even without the, the journal, I think it's part of how, how I was raised because I was, you know, I was always being made. And at the time, I didn't, there was no word for it. You know, we were just told, oh, you're so lucky. You have this. Don't complain. You have this. And that, mm. I think that's what's helped me. Plus also just having the genes. Because like anything, you know, I have the genes for diabetes. I don't have the genes for anxiety. So for me personally, I haven't struggled with anxiety. I, have, I don't live with anxiety. But I know a lot of parents do. And the situation of not being in control can induce anxiety. And so for parents, really, it's how much can you control? And just to focus on those things that are completely in your control. What can I control? What can I influence? And what is absolutely beyond my control? And for that, I just let it go because there's nothing I can do about it. You know, there's so much there also about um, understanding, too, that there is a there is a component that is, you know, predisposition and, and genetics, right? And a oh, lot yeah. of us try to override that. Uh, and I guess there's a shame element, too, associated with that. But it's, um, yeah. right? It, oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, I know um, many, many, you know, I belonged I, I, to moms and people struggle because, at the beginning, you know, when your child is diagnosed, you, you, you focus on the child. And then years later, it is a lot. And then if, if anybody ends up needing medical intervention, if they need to end up taking medication for, for depression or for anxiety or for anything, the conversation used to be, oh, I, I, I gave in. Oh, I, I, you know, it was always said in a negative way eyes cast down or anything in a way that nobody would say, oh, I have diabetes, I'm taking insulin now. Why? Do, I don't understand. Why, why is it that we still, we view our mental health as being separate from our physical health? It doesn't make any sense. I remember you sharing that with me um, a couple of conversations ago about the reactions that you would hear about feeling like a parent is giving up because they need medication to mm-hmm. support them through living with anxiety, living with depression, living with, I mean, the, the gamut is very, is very long. And, and it was striking to hear you say that because that giving up, um, um yeah. I remember having a wonderful guest on, I think about six months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, her name is Patrona and she oh, was yes. very mm-hmm. open. Oh, I I recommend her interview for anyone who is struggling with whether or not, you know, meds makes them feel like they are quote unquote giving up. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, to be honest with you, I think there is also a stigma there too. Is oh, yeah. 
you know, feeling like it's a crutch or feeling Mm -hmm. like, you know, sometimes neurologically and genetically and physically and biologically, there are just elements that you need support on. And we're so open with, you know, needing and talking about needing medications for our body, but there's something about the brain that just makes us feel like we can't go there. What is that no, about? I, 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 it's, I don't, I think it's because, well, for me, honestly, I have to say for most of my life, I never thought about mental health. Actually, I guess I never thought about my health in general. You know, I was young, I was athletic. I just took everything for granted. And it, it was only when, after my son was diagnosed, that I thought, oh, okay, this, this, this is tough. So it was really the first time that I had to say, to say to myself, I'm alone. It's just my husband and I. We don't have support. I have to think about everything. I had to think about my physical health and my mental health because I just kept thinking, I cannot afford to have a breakdown. Yeah. But I think the stigma comes because the mind is so complicated. I think it's, we think that uh, if, I don't know why we think we have to control our minds. That's exactly right. You nailed it. It's it's feeling like we 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 need to resist and control and and uh, yeah. especially our minds. Yeah, we have this illusion that we can control our minds for some reason that we don't have when it comes to our physical body. Yes, and you know what? Actually, th- there there you go. So maybe the fact that it's visible and you can't see mental health problems they're not visible to the naked eye and isn't that so primal it's so primal (laughs) yeah you can't see it you can't see that uh, we don't even think about for the most part we don't talk about neurotransmitters people don't even know in general what those are and to say okay there are these chemicals in your brain this is how your your brain works and this is and and if you have depression or it's because you are missing this neurotransmitter that's usually a long name that people have never heard of. It's just all too much. So we prefer to pretend that that doesn't have, you know, it doesn't exist. It's too complicated. <laughs> oh, it is. That's the thing. It is complicated. But there's also an element of education, I think, that mm. we know that we, we need to start providing in, in curriculums and schools. But uh, that's a whole other. But <laughs> you know whole... what? Kudos to you. Kudos to the to the younger generation, because you are you're, you're a bit younger than me. And, uh, <laughs> no. And, oh, yeah. And, you know, I think now people like you who are having this podcast, who are talking about mental health, who are normalizing conversations about mental health, Let's talk about it at the dinner table, the way we talk about, oh, so-and-so was diagnosed with this. Oh, thank you. That warms my heart, Sazini. That, that's the goal, right? That's, that's the ultimate goal is to, 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 to be able to have those conversations mm-hmm. around the, the, the proverbial table. It's, it's so important. Um, and in that same vein, um, what, what can you tell us about maybe some of the assumptions or, or um what people think they know about any type of neurodevelopmental disorders. People just assume that kids develop in a certain way. Right. And if they don't follow that typical development, then it's funny because it's still back to speaking about autism, going back to really, because at the beginning, 
it was said to be because of a refrigerator mother, a mother who's not um, warm enough, a mother who's not... Um, mm. But we may not say that in those words, but we still say that in different ways. True. Because something like autism is similar to mental health because it's not a visible, it's not a visible disability. So, for example, one time when my son was having a meltdown in a shopping mall and these men were standing there watching us and then they were having this conversation right in front of me about, oh, these kids are so spoiled these days. Oh, my. If it were me, I would just, they just discipline them. And I'm thinking, okay, so you're looking at my son who's having a hard time and you're deciding that it's because of me who is not parenting him properly. Wow. So I guess I would say from that we would, the invisible ones, the assumption is that, well, they don't exist. <laughs> Unreal. You know. But when it's something like Down syndrome that you can see, <laughs> then I guess we think about it and then, but usually that's also negative. That's, that's usually pity and, and oh, poor you, <laughs> which is, no, no poor me. I have friends who have kids with Down syndrome and it's no poor them. Their kids are lovely. They've, they've rich lives. They've added to their lives. So there's so many assumptions and for now, they're all generally wrong. Thank you for saying that also. And you know what? At the same time, I think pity, uh, pity is one of those things that I think, I think serves the person pitying mm -hmm. <laughs> than the one being pitied. It's that it sense of, Oh, let me make myself feel bad. And it, it's, it's one of those reflexes. Right. And I, you know, mm. I mean, we're all, we all, we all do it, but you know, in, inadvertently we all do th that. I think there's something also wired for empathy and yes. there's an empathy yes. element in there somewhere, but um, yeah. yeah. Empathy is good. <laughs> it's a good thing. Empathy is great. <laughs> <laughs> Empathy's wonderful. There should be more empathy. Well, uh, the thing about uh, going back to the assumptions about neurodevelopmental disorder, uh, disorders, one of the big assumptions is that these people are dangerous. Oh, yeah. You have a neurodevelopment. You have autism. Oh, they, they, people are afraid of them. People are afraid of adults with, with autism. And I know families in, in our neighborhood there are two young men who were in their mid-20s and they wanted to move out and share an apartment. And as a community, we all had um, jobs that we were going to do to support them. And it was impossible, impossible for them to rent an apartment. Because the minute people heard about this diagnosis, they just, they wouldn't rent the apartment to them. So there were obviously a lot of assumptions they were making about their diagnosis wow. and they were all negative. And the parents could have taken them to the Human Rights Tribunal for discriminating against a disability, but, you know, they didn't because they don't have the energy, they don't have the time. So they just kept searching. <sighs> I mean, that's what I mean about the education piece. And it's, mm. I, you know, ignorance is one of those things that um, I, I'd love to believe that people, when they know better, do better. Now, mm. is that wishful thinking? 
I'm not entirely sure, but speaking of wishful thinking and <laughs> optimism, <laughs> um, what, what Sazini switching gears a bit, what, what makes you happy? Oh, what makes me happy? So many things. <laughs> I, I'm generally a happy person. Music, being outside. Mm. Being, I love being outside when it's warm. You know, in winter I do go outside, but not as much. But when it's warm and I can be outside in nature, whether I'm gardening or I'm hiking or I'm just camping, actually camp. <laughs> camping, those kind of things. I love, 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 love just being outside. Oh, it's so replenishing, isn't it? Now that we're heading into the summer months here in the city, I feel even the vitamin D, speaking of neurotransmitters mm. and, and, you know, helping the brain, I think yes. vitamin D is such a huge piece in, in I think, everyone's, you know, um, morale. Oh, and... yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I think, I don't know, I, I get the impression that because... Growing up, I took it for granted, right? I grew up in a place full of sun and everything. And then I moved to England and then I moved to Scotland. So when I moved to the Northern Hemisphere and then further north, that's when I actually started thinking about my vitamin D intake. Oh, wow. <laughs> now I actually take supplements, which I never did my, you know, growing up because there was always sunshine and I made enough. That's wild. It is a fact, right? Mm. People in the northern hemispheres for, I believe, eight to six to eight months out of the year do actually need <laughs> yeah. a vitamin D supplement. And you know what? It's not, it's not just for mood. It's for um immunity support oh yeah oh yeah we we could geek out on the biochemistry <laughs> of, of course <laughs> i'm speaking with the right person for <laughs> <laughs> but suffice to say everybody needs to take vitamin d especially in no you know in the northern climates in winter it's 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 cold here we don't get enough sun even on sunny days in winter it's not the right wavelength Absolutely. Oh, that is so true. Yes, yes. And it has to be um, in the summer months there. There's a 15 minute amount, I think, on, with uh, with no sun protection that I think also th the absorption through the eyes is mm -hmm. also really important. Anyways, there's a bunch of <laughs> really fun factoids. But again, yeah. <laughs> that's a rabbit hole, but I won't. Yes. Another interview <laughs> for another interview or another time. Um Thank you, Sazini, for, for this. Please tell everyone where you can be found online, on social. Where are you at? Where am I? Oh, um, my, I have a website. It's um, drsazini.com and yes. Facebook. Uh, I'm pretty active on Facebook more than anything else. I'm at Dr. Sazini as well. Pretty much everywhere is the same handle, at Dr. Sazini, whether it's Twitter or Instagram and that's where I can be found. Awesome. And you know what? Also, thank you for the work that you do. I think many parents would echo these words because, you know, your path right now is, is not an easy one, but you're, the work you're doing is so back to impactful, mm -hmm. so, so impactful and continuing doing that good work. Cause trust me, you will, you will, 
make this world such a better place. We need that right now, Sazini. I cannot tell you how much we need that. So thank you from, from I think, everyone that's been around you and you've graced their presence with. And you're such a wonderful, warm person as well. Like I, It's a joy for me to, to interact with you. So thank you. Thank you for being who you are. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You know, all I want is just to have that one mom who's feeling, because, you know, dad's too, but it tends to be mom. Hmm. that mom who's feeling overwhelmed and saying I don't know what to do and they literally are just frozen I just want them to feel that you know what yes their child's been diagnosed with this neurodevelopmental disorder but you're still their mom you know what's best for them and you have it in you to help your child you it's not just the experts it's not just the people with the many many letters after them you as a parent you can help your child and to have that confidence and to just, you know what, live their lives. Mm. Just go out there and live the life that they always wanted. Because of course you need to modify, but you can still have the life that you always wanted. Yes, that empowerment piece that keeps coming back. It is so important. Sazini, you're so awesome. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I think it's safe to say that Sazini has wholeheartedly restored my faith in humanity. There's this incredible quote that reminds me of her, which is, a willing helper does not wait until they are asked. I think someone like Sazini definitely doesn't need to be asked to help. She gives from her core. What a lesson that is. Honestly, it's been a huge lesson for me. She's given me so much perspective on kindness and what it's like to give from your soul. I've shared with you all some of my woes of this past couple of years about the house search and my wedding planning and everything in between. I've been let down by some people and really uplifted by others, including this incredible community. So to my listeners, I really thank you for continuing to join me in these important conversations. Again, a huge thank you to Dr. Sazini and Zula for being on the podcast. Please follow me on Instagram. Let's talk more about this at Anxious Millennial Podcast. Once again, thank you for being here and we will talk soon.